If you could find your Bible or a Bible provided for you under the chairs, please uh, find 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We uh, last week started a new series called Entrusted. Now I'm talking about uh, God's purpose and our focus. And we'll be covering the books of First and Second Timothy over the next 5, 6, 25 months. So however long it takes us to get through, we will make it through First and Second Timothy. As you're making your way uh, to First Timothy 1, please stand with me in the honor of reading the words of God. First Timothy 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and this opportunity to hear from you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would even now open um, blind eyes, unblocked, stopped ears, um, that even this morning you might take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, that your Spirit would do a great and mighty work among us this morning, that sinners would be converted, that struggling believers would be encouraged, that the afflicted would be comforted, that the comfortable might be afflicted, and that we would be convicted by your word. Do what you will this morning, Lord God, and help us to submit to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your seat. We're going to cover specifically verses 3 through 11 in First Timothy chapter 1 this morning as we really get moving in this new series. Last week we outlined kind of the broad themes and the background of the books of First and Second Timothy, so I won't spend too much time this morning doing that. But I did want to start um, with a story about a guy named Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius um, was a North African or an Egyptian, and he was born in the late 3rd century and lived most of his life in the 4th century and became for much of his life the Bishop of Alexandria. And he had a, a great amount to do with uh, the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D., um, a creed constructed to combat a heresy that had spread all across the empire. In fact, a, a man named Arius had um, begun to kind of market his heresy really well. He created a few jingles um, for his heresy, and it even began to spread across the Roman Empire, and that people would be singing that the sun was once not God. And so his heresy was a denial of the eternality of the second person in the Trinity. He denied that Jesus had always been God. He said from certain portions of the New Testament that Jesus must have been created, that Jesus must have been a creature of God's. No doubt he was now worthy of worship. He'd been elevated into Godness or into the Godhead, but he had not always been God of God. And so as this Heresy traveled across the land. It actually became the dominant form of Christianity. And Athanasius was one who stood against it. In fact, 
over his decades as the bishop of the church at Alexandria, he was exiled five times from his church by the authorities and five times came back to his church in Alexandria. Uh, One of the famous uh, sayings about uh, Athanasius was Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Uh, It seemed at times that Athanasius was on his own, that other bishops and pastors and elders around the Roman Empire capitulated to the heresy. They gave in, they began to teach it. And Athanasius at times himself and at times his followers felt like it was him against everybody. Athanasius contramunum, Athanasius against the world. And yet Athanasius never gave in. He never gave in. He wrote all kinds of writings that we still have. You can purchase them and read them for yourself. He wrote uh, volumes upon volumes upon volumes of Christian theology. uh, One of the most important theologians of the early centuries. And Athanasius is a model for us this morning as we look at Paul's charge to Timothy to charge certain persons uh, not to teach false doctrine. And I've entitled the sermon, Where is the Love? True and False Teaching in the church. And the reason I do that is because I think verse 5 is the core of this passage that we're going to investigate today. And um, love is something that is misunderstood. Several months ago I preached on love in our series on the attributes of God, I Am. And we talked about what love is and what love is not. And love is so misunderstood and misrepresented in our culture that we are confused about love. We do not know exactly what love is or what it ought to be. And so as we talk about true and false teachings, we talk about doctrine and theology and all of these things, love is at the center of it all. Love is at the center of it all. And love is not the equivalent of tolerance. Love is not blind acceptance of somebody else. It is not merely an emotional reaction to something or someone. It's not just attraction to something or someone. And love is certainly not passive. Um, Love disciplines. It would be unloving for me to idly stand by and not want to yell or raise my voice at my daughter if she were running into the street. No, it would be loving of me to yell very loudly and to run after her and grab her from going into the street. Love exhibits itself in many different ways. Love consoles at times. Love rebukes. Love corrects. Love prevents. Love forgives. Love rejoices. Love considers others better than self. Love proves and flows out of obedience. Love never, ever fails. And love fulfills the law, which we'll also be talking about today. These, these two things that we don't normally put together, law and love, obedience and love. Supremely, love considers God's desires, what pleases God, and acts on His love because of His love, because of His initiating love. Love gives. The most famous passage in the Bible For God so loved the world that he gave. He was moved by his love to give his only son. So as we talk about combating false teaching and false doctrine, this is not about who wins. This is not about who's smarter, who intellectually has um, more power in their brain. This is not just about um, getting things right in certain categories because if that's done we've all felt that from other people and when that's done apart from love it is not helpful in fact it most often comes across as arrogant and it doesn't achieve what so often we mean for it to achieve so again as we as we talk about true and false teaching here we have to remember love love cannot be left out of this discussion so let's let's dive into it let's look at verse three Verse 3, just a little bit of background, a little bit of setting for those that weren't here last week. Um, You can go and access that message on uh, our website later if you'd like to hear more about this. As we see, um, Paul was going to Macedonia in verse 3. 
And he's telling Timothy to remain at Ephesus. So we know that the controversy and the setting of the book is for the church at Ephesus where Timothy has either been sent or left and Paul has gone to Macedonia. Um, Ephesus is on the west coast of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Macedonia is in the north of, north of Greece, um, across the Aegean Sea and the peninsula. It is where Alexander the Great came from. And so cities that you would recognize from Macedonia would be Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi. These places that Paul had traveled on his second and third missionary journeys. We also talked last week about where this is in a timeline of Paul's life. We, we talked about the end of Acts and how Acts 28 ends. Paul's in prison. Well, he's in house arrest. It's been two years and period. And it's done. And we don't, what, what's going on? What happens? We want to know the end of the story. And we can try to piece this together. This is not authoritative, but it seems that the setting of 1 Timothy belongs after Paul has been released from prison, from house arrest, at the end of the book of Acts. Now this is pieced together from other books um, that Paul wrote. Different circumstances seem to suggest these things. Um, And also church tradition says that Paul actually did fulfill his wish of going as far west as you could go in the Roman Empire and go to Spain. We don't see that in the book of Acts, but it seems to be from church history and tradition that that's what happened. And so this seems to be that uh, Paul has, has come back. He's been released from prison. He's gone west. He's come back to the churches that he started 15 years or more prior. And now he is continuing to visit churches and to work. And some of what we know here is that the setting here is he's on the move. The setting in 2 Timothy is he is in prison and he is looking at death in the face. He knows that death is coming. That does not seem to be the case here in 1 Timothy. But in 2 Timothy, when we get there, you'll see that he most definitely is looking into the eyes of death and is about to have his head removed from his shoulders by Emperor Nero. So that's a little bit of the setting that's going on here. And we see the purpose for Paul writing to Timothy is that, look at verse 3, you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So you'll see in your notes, uh, Roman numeral 1, charge false teachers for love. His point from 3b to 7 is that Timothy is to charge false teachers for love. For love's sake, for the sake of love, he needs to do this for love, not merely to be proven right. Paul does not have some egotistical, um, megalomaniac desire to be right, right at all costs. How many of you like being right? You prize that? Wow, good, good. Uh, Not very many of you. (laughs) How many of you really like being right in an argument or a debate, let's say? Okay, wow, so many of you are just just so selfless and don't really care about whether you're right or not. Wow, the rest of us feel even worse. Okay, well, here's, here's the point here. The point that we see from 3b to 7 is that Paul is going to tell Timothy, you've got to fix the problem, but fixing the problem is not the only thing. Fixing the problem for love, for love, in love, by love. And so we see as we move through exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to do. So let's look again at the end of verse 3 and begin to dive into verse 4. Paul has urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so this brings us to point A in your notes. Timothy is to command against different doctrine. He's to command against different doctrine. And depending on what version you have, it may say false. It may say strange doctrine. Um, The the word there is hetero. Different. Not the same. And so he is to command against different doctrine. Now, if there is different doctrine, if it is false doctrine, if it is strange doctrine, that means there must be some objective doctrine to measure against. So if this is different doctrine, there must be a certain doctrine that this is straying away from. So Paul has in mind a doctrine, a 
wealth of a gathering of teaching that is right and the teaching that's happening in Ephesus has gone astray, is off the mark of true doctrine. And so this is an important thing for us to consider. We um, are in Orange County, the birthplace of the megachurch. Um, TBN is down the road. We're surrounded by different theologies, by um, prosperity gospel. We are surrounded by every kind of church from every denomination and cult and religion that you could ask for. This is Southern California. And we need to consider this. And we need to consider this carefully. We also need to be careful that we don't become um, so in love with uh, doctrine and theology and apologetics that we cannot tell um, who's on what team. And so some people are so uh, concerned here that if you differ at all with any piece of how they understand Scripture, you are a heretic. And we need to be careful here. How different does it have to be? We need to be careful not to, not to confuse mistaken or confused teaching for false teaching. Um, we need to do uh, what um, Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, calls theological triage. When you go to the emergency room, they practice triage, meaning if you um, are spurting blood out of your neck, you have a higher priority than the person who has a few slivers under their right toe. We have to decide who to treat first. If there are a mass of people that come into the hospital, or better yet, if there's people on the battlefield that come be dragged back behind the lines to the medics, we've got to figure out who to treat first. Which is more life-threatening? Which person needs to be seen first? And so we have to do this with doctrine and theology. We have to assess. We have to do theological triage to figure out what is false teaching and what just might be disagreement. And this is a tough thing that we're probably going to fight for the rest of our lives until we get to heaven and have it all explained to us. But not everything we disagree about is heresy. So a few weeks ago, we talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there are a variety of different views shared by Protestant churches um, that we would not call heresy. We would disagree with, but we would not necessarily break fellowship over. It might... It might uh, help us consider what church we would and would not go to, but it would not necessarily have us shunning these people and not considering them Christians. So some, um, maybe we might call them second order doctrines we might consider would be perhaps our view of the end times, um, the proper mode of baptism, your view or thoughts on predestination and election and free will and how those all work together or don't work together. Um, those are just a few examples of where we have to be careful to assess the importance of it. And how do we, what's the center of this? How do we figure this out? What's our, our objective? Well, the closer we get to the center of the faith, the closer we get to the gospel, the closer we get to those non-negotiables, the harder we have to hold those things. And so often I'll explain these things as the things that you hold with a closed fist. So this church, God willing, will never give up that Jesus is the Son of God. We won't give that up. In fact, if you look at our Constitution, we have essentials and distinctives. And so we can disagree on some things and fellowship together and be together at this church. But there are a, there's a kernel, a central point where we cannot deviate from. We must be careful to constantly be assessing the importance of these things. What is essential to the Christian faith? If you had an hour to talk to someone who did not know anything about Christianity, what would you spend your time talking about? What is central to the faith? And this is important because we see in verse 4 that these false teachers in Ephesus were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And this might sound um, interesting but to you and, and maybe kind of a little different than what we're used to, but um, they're kind of technical terms in the time of Paul. Myths are not just legends. So this is not just someone decided to teach from Lord of the Rings rather than from the book of Acts. Um, this, these are not just legends. They're, it's a word that indicates a, kind of a negative sense. It's improper application of things that may or may not have happened in the distant past. 
So rather than take what we know, we take what might have been and start to build a theology on that. Um, this is Mormonism. This is Mormonism. Um, you read the Book of Mormon and you see things happening in upstate New York and go to upstate New York and there is absolutely not a shred of evidence that this ever happened. You open your Bible and you go to the land of Israel and you can stand in Solomonic gates. It happened. It is history. It's not myth. And so we don't build on myth. And we'll talk more about this as we get into some different words here. Also, endless genealogies. I know that, that many of you this morning woke up at 5.30 and grabbed your cup of coffee and turned to the first nine chapters of First Chronicles and just loved it. You just want to read name after name after name after name that you can't pronounce because it ministers so much to your soul. We just love genealogies, don't we? Right? No, we don't. In our personal devotions, be honest, right? You're like, oh boy. Oops. Okay, next page. Let's move on. I don't know how to pronounce that. Well, this is not just genealogy. So it's hard to imagine anybody having a false doctrine that just comports with genealogies. Right? So no cult out there meets every Sunday and just reads genealogies. That doesn't happen. It can't happen. Nobody would go to that cult. Nobody would support that financially. So what's going on here is it's kind of like this subgenre of narrative where we go back and look at genealogies, perhaps even the genealogies of the Bible, and then begin to kind of build personal histories or biographies off of these names, begin to make things up or take a little thing of what we know and build on it, start to do some really radical historical fiction, and then use that historical fiction as the basis for our belief. These stories then... These stories and genealogies would undergird doctrines and theology that would go off course. So this is what he's talking about. Apparently people in Ephesus had gone off course because they were paying more attention to myths and endless genealogies. And why is Paul concerned about this? Well, he's concerned because they promote speculations at the end of verse 4. They promote speculations. So point number one there in your notes false teaching results in distraction false teaching results in distraction the word speculation you don't want me or pastor on to get up here every sunday and kind of speculate on what the scriptures might be saying possibly perhaps maybe that is not good that's not helpful how many of you want me to do your family member's funeral and speculate that's not helpful that's not concrete. It's not good, and it is it results in false teaching. So we've got to recognize this, that false teaching kind of takes some of what may be true or some minor points and then begins to build off of those. So false doctrine is always, 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 always just a sermon, just a message, just a podcast, just a book, a conference, a seminar away. False teaching is always that close, so we must be vigilant. Turn the page in your Bible and look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul says the Spirit communicated to him that this will happen. It will happen. Be on the lookout. Go down to verse 16. So he tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch. Don't assume. Get into the details again and again and again. In fact, Paul had even warned the elders of this church that this would happen. Go back to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and he meets in Miletus, which is near Ephesus. The Ephesian elders kind of take a little road trip. Paul's on a boat and they meet in Miletus. So go to Acts 20 and look at verse 28. Paul is, is speaking with the elders of the church. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, I know, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from where? 
Outside? No, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Wake up. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says it's going to happen. Guaranteed. And it's not going to be some traveling preacher that comes in, runs up on stage while the pastor's preaching and starts spouting stuff. It's going to be people from within the teachers, the elders of the church. Be aware. Be on guard. This church had been warned by Paul already. Years before this. So they must be careful. False teaching results in distraction. It it promotes speculations. Rather than Paul compares this or contrasts this with the stewardship from God that is by faith. See that at the end of verse 4? Depending on what version you have, there's a whole lot of different things you could see. If you have the NIV, it says God's work. If you have the New American Standard, it says administration of God. And there's debate about what this means, but in general, I think what Paul is saying is he's contrasting these speculations, these kind of just made-up things that take root in myths and genealogies, and those are contrasted with a stewardship. What's a steward? A steward is someone who's taking care of somebody else's property. So house-sitting. Okay, that's what this is. And so I think what's going on here is Paul is saying, rather than these speculations that the false teachers are promoting, what they ought to be focusing on is the stewardship from God. God had given them something that they needed to steward well and they had failed. And in that failure, they had gone off course. So this is what we have as well. The stewardship from God that is by faith. Faith is a certainty. It's a belief that God will do what he said he'll do. And so by faith means that we, based on God's ability and God's promises and God's coming through in our lives and in others, that by faith we trust his stewardship, not our own made-up things that just kind of take us off the path, that promote speculation. Rather, we are to be devoted to the stewardship from God that is by faith. That brings a seriousness to it. We've been entrusted with something very, very precious and very important. If your relative leaves you their ashes in an urn, you don't play catch with it. You steward it. You take care of it. You guard it. You put it somewhere where it's not going to, oh, get knocked over. When someone gives you something very precious and important, when someone hands you a baby, you have, you should have, please do, have some caution because what you are holding is not yours. You've been entrusted with it. And so these false teachers had forsaken the stewardship and gone off after speculations. Letter B in your notes. This gets us into verse 5. Paul tells Timothy, take aim with proper motives. Take aim with proper motives. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. Love is the goal. It's the end. It is what we're aiming for, what we're aiming at. Timothy was charged to correct the false teachers, but not to correct them and go, Ha! You're wrong. Paul said you're wrong. I'm right. Point for me. That's, that's not the attitude with which this is to be done in. And it's not the end to which he's looking. Timothy should not be looking towards defeating these false teachers. He should be looking to correct the false teachers in love for the purpose of love. That love is the end. It's the goal. It's the center of what should occur from this correction. The aim of our charge is love. And again, love can be so misunderstood that Paul really helps us to understand where this love is coming from. And he says three things. He says it comes from one, a pure heart. One, it comes from a pure heart. This love comes from a pure heart. Matthew 5, 8 in the Beatitudes, we know that the pure in heart shall see God. 
Um, throughout the New Testament, the pure heart is an indication that the center of one's being is unstained. It has been made clean. It affects the mind, decisions made, the will. It was the center of who we are. And so the love comes from the center of your being. Not just some momentary emotion. It comes from who you are. So this love from Timothy ought to come from his pure heart. Second, it ought to come from a good conscience or a clear or a clean conscience. The conscience is just the function of evaluating rightness and wrongness. And it can be, it can be skewed. Um, but it is a God-given way. Um, for us to evaluate what is right and wrong. And so when you have been saved from your sin and the Holy Spirit resides within you, the Holy Spirit informs your conscience. The Holy Spirit, um, in, in almost in a sense, gives boost to your conscience to help you know what is right and wrong. And so the love ought to come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and last from a sincere faith. From a sincere faith or genuine. The word means literally without hypocrisy. So the faith is not faked. It's not made up. The, the love comes from a sincere, genuine, real faith. How many of you have a leather-ish Bible? Look on the back. Bonded leather. True tone. Genuine leather. Maybe someone has a really nice like calfskin Bible or something. There's a difference in the material. And that's why it costs less or more depending on what material it is. This is genuine. It's sincere. It's real. It's the real stuff. And so if love comes from these things, then the aim of the charge is pure. So that, so that when Timothy goes in to correct, he's got right motives. He's got right. It's, it's hard to respect someone that comes into your life to try to help you with something or correct you if you suspect their motives. Right? Ah, I don't, I don't know what I should think about this. Timothy was to go into this correction, into this difficulty, correct these perhaps elders of the church with the aim, the goal, the end being love. Well, Paul continues to talk about these people and what they have done in contrast to the stewardship. And so we move to letter C. Observe the results of deviation. Observe the results of deviation. Verses 6 and 7. The word the ESV uses here is swerving. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. And I think the first thing that pops into our mind, right, swerving is kind of you're reaching for something in the car and you get up, whoa, got to correct where the vehicle is going, you swerve. It's a sudden move. The only difference is this is not accidental. Behind the word swerving and behind the word wandered is not accidentally, oh, I got lost. There is a purposeful nature to this. It's deliberate. It's turning away. In fact, the word for swerving is missing the mark with a purposeful nature behind it, wandered, is deliberately turning away and going in another direction. And so certain persons, which is the way that Paul mostly says it in First uh, and Second Timothy, certain persons, every once in a while he'll name who it is, but he says certain persons, which kind of indicates to us that it's a small group. There's a small faction teaching these false doctrines, but they are clearly uh, powerful and influential and so they've wandered. And so Timothy's to take note of this. Notice what the speculation from verse 4, this swerving, this wandering does. Well, what does it do? Well, it shows that they desire to be teachers of the law, which is a term used for scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels. But they don't understand what they're saying. Or the things about which they make confident assertions. They've wandered away. Vain discussion. Empty words. There comes a point where debate and discussion is just going in a circle and needs to stop because it's not helping anybody anymore. Anybody been there? You're making the same point you made half an hour ago. It's time to stop. We're going to get off track. We're going to miss the mark. We're going to miss the truth, what's most important. That is not to say we don't debate and discuss things. We ought to do that, but we ought to do it with caution 
and on a base in the basis of God's word. Notice that the desire to be teachers is a good thing. Look at look at chapter three of First Timothy, verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The overseer is equivalent to the elder. And the th- one of the things, the primary thing that distinguishes an elder from a deacon is the ability to teach. And so there's a desire here. The desire, the aspiration to be an elder, an overseer is a good thing. So the desiring to be teachers is not wrong. The problem is they're not qualified. They don't have the prerequisite understanding or preparation. Look at verse 7 without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They don't even know what they're saying and they're confidently saying things they don't know. Not helpful. There's an ancient proverb that says this, ignorance is bold. I don't know, but I think I do. Therefore, say it boldly and make up for the, uh, I don't know. Say it boldly enough, maybe someone will believe you. It's ironic. They don't know what they don't know. This is a problem. This is why we teach on Sunday mornings, on Tuesday nights, on Wednesday nights, in our community groups. Whenever we gather around this book, we teach from this book. Because we don't want to make confident assertions. We don't want to promote speculations. We have the words of God available to us. We don't need to swerve off topic. We don't need to speculate. We know the truth. James 3, one says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Something that we need to take into consideration. Don't leap too quickly into a teaching role in the church. You should pray for all of our teachers, from our littlest ones to the adult Sunday school classes, to Pastor Ron and myself, to our elders. Please pray for our teachers. There is a judgment, a stricter judgment for teachers, which ought to make our teachers uh, cautious. They ought to lend a, a weight, a seriousness to teaching. Let me, let me um, talk to all of you who have the opportunity at some point to teach our young ones, uh, especially with VBS coming up um, next month. For those of you that serve in our preschool, Sunday school classes, and in our elementary um, Teaching our children is not some kind of like junior varsity team. Well, you can't teach adults, so you got to teach the kids. That's not at all the case. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said if you can't teach little kids, you shouldn't be teaching adults. Because if you can't explain it clearly so that a child can understand, you're going to have some real issues talking to adults. So those of you that have any kind of role teaching our children, it is not JV. You are on the front lines. Teach accurately. Take it seriously. Study. Maybe you don't know the story as well as you think you do. Look in God's word instead of relying on your perhaps faulty memory. You ever done that? I think I know a Bible story that I'm teaching. I go back and look in the scripture. Whoa, where did I get that? That is not how it was, how it is in the Bible. So let's be careful. Let's pray for our teachers. Pray also for the elders of this church. Pray that we would not fall asleep at our post. Pray that we would guard well the doctrine of this church. We live in an age where courage has left us. It only finds itself in movies every once in a while. And the only heresy left today is to say that there is heresy. And so for us to guard the doctrine of this church will take courage. So pray for us. We need to continue into the second portion of the passage, starting in verse 8. Paul takes a little diversion. If you're familiar with reading Paul, he does this all the time. I think partially it's because he's so excited about what he's teaching that he just, oh, I, I gotta say this, I gotta say this. Sometimes it doesn't even make it back to where he was. In fact, we'll see uh, maybe next week or the week after that he finally gets back to this in verse, in verse 18. He takes an 11 verse diversion. But in verse 8 through 11, we see the purpose of the law and right doctrine. That's uh, Roman numeral number two, the purpose of the law and right doctrine. Now, as we get into this, it's not a treatise on the law. So this is not a, a long essay explaining all the ins and outs of how the Christian approaches the law, which specifically is r- related to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. 
how do we relate? Well, if you want to see more on this, please read Romans 2 and 3 or Romans 7. Look at Galatians 3 and 5 as Paul spends much more time there talking about the law. Many people read verse 8 and say, well, Paul couldn't have said this. This isn't Paul. Many actually say that. But let's read it. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is what? Good. The law is good. If, (laughs) that's an important word, if one uses it lawfully. Now the ESV tries to to keep the wordplay from the original language, law and lawfully. Um, You're using the law how you use it. You use it lawfully. Um, that's exactly what uh, the Greek says, that he that you're to it's kind of play on words there. And so the ESV keeps that in there. And the law must be used in the way the law is meant to be used. The law cannot be misused and still mean what it originally meant. To skew it that way destroys the original intent and meaning. And so we find in verses 8 through 10, this is letter A in your notes, the law is primarily for sinners. The law is primarily for sinners. And using the word sinners, I'm referring to those who have not been saved. This is not to say that Christians do not sin. But the designation sinners here, and Paul even uses that word, is to point out those who do not believe. And that is who the law is for. So fundamentally, the law is good if it's used lawfully. This is like giving um, trained people weapons. We don't hand out guns at the police station for anybody who wants to use one. Here, protect yourself and your family. We, we, no one wants to see that. <laughs> we want to see trained people using a weapon rightly. Um, and so the same thing with the law. If I'm running around with a broadsword and I've never held a broadsword in my life, it's not funny for me to run up to you and go, ha, ha, because I'm holding a lethal weapon. The law is a, is, is, can be used as a tool or a weapon and it needs to be wielded correctly. And so we look in verse 9 to see who the law is for. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. And now we begin to go into a list that Paul begins to just try to include everybody in so that no one feels left out. The law is for these people. Got Uh, mostly pairs here first he has the lawless and disobedient this is kind of a general category for rebellious disobedient people Um, it has a rejection of god's authority the next pair are the ungodly and sinners and this is just kind of emphasizing that they're blatantly wrong they're against god they have set themselves up against him the next pair is unholy and profane and this speaks to inappropriate worship of god they're far from god not on accident, by accident, they're far from God on purpose. They don't want to be anywhere near him. They don't want to be set apart. They want to be away from his presence. The next pair are those who strike their fathers and mothers and murderers. This is the extreme of dishonorable in the eyes of this culture. To strike, some of your uh, versions say even murder, your parents was the height of dishonoring them. And of course, murdering is taking a life, ending a life, not regarding life. Next, Paul says, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. The word for sexual, sexually immoral is pornea. We get the word pornography from, and this is a general term for all sexual sin. This is a catch-all. And then he specifies, and this is so important for our country, isn't it? This very week, um, this was Im- very important for Timothy in Ephesus. Um, the word here, men who practice homosexuality, um, does not just talk about male prostitutes. It does not just talk about men having a little boy to use for sexual purposes, as was practiced in Rome. It is not just the act of homosexuality. It's not speaking of um, promiscuous homosexuality rather than Um, an okay uh, monogamous homosexuality. Uh, Gordon Wenham is an Old Testament scholar and he says that this is Paul taking the same words from the Old Testament law and it covers every kind of male-on-male intercourse. There are all kinds of sophisticated attempts to try to 
weasel the way out of what the Bible says about homosexuality. Folks, homosexuality goes against God's design. That's why it's wrong. It's not wrong because it's gross. It's not wrong because it doesn't create children. It's, well, it is wrong for all those things, but it is primarily wrong because it goes against God's created order. God made male and female on purpose. In fact, God made male and female, in most cases, for marriage to reflect Jesus' love for the church. Homosexuality destroys that view of Jesus' love for the church. Homosexuality lies about Jesus' love for the church. On the other hand, so many Christians have not done well at loving homosexuals. We, li- we love liars, that's okay, I lie, liars are okay, you know, everyone does it. But homosexuality, ah, I'm not going to get near those people. They need Jesus, just like you and I need Jesus. And so we have to find the proper way to balance telling the culture prophetically, this is the way God made sex and marriage and gender And we're all sexual sinners to some degree or another. And all sexual sinners need forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, you're not anything special. You were this, you were this, you were this. You practiced homosexuality. He said, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were washed. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Jesus can overcome any sin. Any and every sin. That's why he came. We continue on. He talks about enslavers. Um, these are kidnappers for the slave trade. Slave, slave, slavery was not illegal, but kidnapping for it was. Um, this goes to today as well as human trafficking is, is a huge issue in our world. Hundreds of thousands of mostly young girls are trafficked in our country for sex. That's despicable and it is wrong. And Paul dealt with it back then and the church ought to deal with it today. Well, he mentions liars and perjurers. Liars is the general term. Perjury is lying under oath. He continues to use, um, he uses a term that kind of encompasses everything else. And in case anyone else is feeling left out, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So if you weren't included in any of those things, which you were, then you're included in this one. And so Paul says, all of these are for, who, are for whom the law is for. The law is for sinners. It is for these people. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so sound there means healthy. It's a word that, that even in the Gospels is used for when Jesus heals people. So it's, it's, it's healthy doctrine. It, it's, it's a doctrine that produces life, that's alive, that's living, that is not sick and dying. And because we need to finish, let's, let's get to verse 11. Uh, letter B, right doctrine is consistent with Paul's Gospel. Right doctrine is consistent with Paul's Gospel. Sound doctrine is built on, consistent with, flows out of, in accordance with the gospel. The gospel is the very heart and soul of doctrine. Everything comes out from it. The gospel is the core. And we see here um, that the gospel is all about God's glory. Point number one, Paul's gospel is all about God's glory. The gospel message reveals the glory of God because the gospel says you didn't save yourself, you couldn't save yourself, and you needed God to rescue you. And so that glorifies God because I have nothing to say about me in talking about my salvation. When I share my testimony, it's not about me. I I didn't do it. Why do we love? He first loved us. I didn't pursue God. He pursued me. This is the gospel, and so it glorifies God. It does not glorify self. It all points to Him. And lastly, number two, Paul's gospel is God's gospel is our gospel. Paul's gospel is God's gospel is our gospel. We've been entrusted 
with the same message. There at the end of verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Christ himself gave it to Paul and Paul gave it to Timothy and Timothy gave it to others and now down through the ages it's in Garden Grove, California in the year 2013. And we've been entrusted with it, folks. It's our stewardship. Are you stewarding it well? We ought to go for the gospel. That means across the street. That means around the world. We ought to give for the gospel. If that means finances, if that means um, work, volunteering, studying, teaching, working at VBS. Um, discipleship is, is here as we disciple the younger generations. As we look for opportunities for the gospel, it is our gospel to proclaim. It is God's gospel that he has given to us. So I'm sorry I went long. But the point is, in dealing with false teaching, love is at the center Love ought to be the motivation and love ought to be the end goal in dealing with false teachings. So we've got to be careful that we don't get involved in correcting false teaching just because we like being right or we have some kind of hobby in studying theology. Theology is meant to point to Jesus and his gospel. So bow your heads with me as we pray and as we go from this place. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the 50 plus years that Village Bible Church has been in existence. Thank you that we still believe the same thing the founders of this church believed. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. For without your faithfulness, we surely would have gone astray. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful to the gospel and to sound teaching, to right doctrine. That we would not give in to fads or to the culture and wherever it's going that we would stay true to your word, both in our personal lives, and our family lives, and how we live out the gospel in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, at our schools. Lord, may we do this all with love. That love would be at the center of our right and proper and sound doctrine. That we would be motivated by love to study. That we would be motivated by love to share. That we would be motivated by love to see others enter the kingdom that we have been ushered into. So Father, this morning as we go from this place and as we go to Sunday school classes and as we go to lunch, and um, Lord, as, as many of us work in the fireworks stand this week, pray that we would remember this thing, that love is at the center and that we have opportunities to share the gospel with the dying world, lost and headed to hell as we once were before you rescued us and washed us and cleansed us and gave us a mission entrusting us with the gospel. So as we go forth from this place, help us to remember that and to live our lives accordingly. Give us the strength to do it by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.